today on EdgeFX. I wanted to tell a little story about smoking and culture in Reedsville, North Carolina. <laughs> but as it turns out, Reedsville is connected to a very big global story. And so I got sucked into a much more ambitious project that took me in many different directions and was really a lot of fun. Historian Drew Swanson speaks with Nan Instad, author of the new book, Cigarettes Inc., An Intimate History of Corporate Imperialism. They discuss the corporate culture of smoking at British American Tobacco, which as Instad shows, helps us to think about the traditionally conceived commodity chain with nuance. Their conversation draws together both the scale of global capitalism from North Carolina to China and the ephemerality of the cigarette. Uh, So welcome, Nan. I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation today with you about your new book, Cigarettes, Inc. I found it to be a really fascinating work. It's provocative in a lot of ways. I think for business historians, historians of modernity, historians of consumerism, you've got a lot to say. But I guess I wanted to start by asking you about how you came to this project, since historians have their own pasts, especially since I have a past that connects to tobacco, too. I'm curious about uh, what, what lured you into this project. Yeah. Well, uh, the the project really came from me living in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, That's where my first job as a professor was. And I was there in the 90s when the tobacco industry was crashing and factories were closing. There was a lot of coverage of it in the news. And it was all around factories in Greensboro to the east, west and north of Greensboro. So I was seeing a lot of that. And I was also seeing that my students in in Greensboro smoked at a much higher rate than in my home state of Minnesota. And I noticed a different smoking culture in town as well. And I just became intrigued by the region and the culture of smoking and the history of smoking and of tobacco. And I was particularly interested in how you know, going back in history, you know, our, my image of, you know, smokers in the in the 20s and 30s was sort of the great Gatsby flapper, you know, a, a New York City glamorous culture. But given all the factories that were around, um, I realized uh, that there was another history of smoking that was working class, white and black. And I wanted to explore that. So that was my that was my original research question. I didn't really get to start looking into it until I moved to Wisconsin, but I went back. And I, I started by going up to the town of Reedsville. And most people don't know where Reedsville is, but I know that you do because you're from the area. Yeah, I grew up fairly close. So uh, that, was, that was a very uh, interesting portion of the book for me to, to look at that hometown place sort of through somebody else's eyes. Was yeah, I'm curious about your impression of that. Um, so, you know, people have written about tobacco in Durham and Winston-Salem, but nobody's written about Reedsville. And it's, a, and, you know, as you know, it's a tiny town of about 8,000 people, and it has a massive, one of the huge American tobacco factories in it that employed thousands of people. Um, so it really dwarfs the town. And so I convinced a friend of mine to do some interviews with me, Corey Graves, and we drove up from uh, where I was staying in Reeds, in uh, Greensboro. We'd just drive up to Reedsville. We went to old folks' homes and said, you know, we're interested in talking to anybody who worked at American tobacco. And so that's how we started. And we just started talking to people and the whole project unfolded from from there. 
you mentioned um, sort of the popularity of Durham and that part of the story of cigarettes that we often know. Uh, the, the fact that when in cigarettes appear in early historiography, it's all about James Duke and that monopolistic power of American tobacco company. Can you tell listeners how we've gotten that story wrong or maybe how we focused on the wrong part of cigarettes corporate history? Yeah, well, there's so many ways that my project shifted from a a story about smoking and culture to it includes that still, but it's much more a study of the corporation and kind of taking a cultural look at the corporation, which is how agriculture comes in and transnational studies of China comes in because I started to look at the corporation as the entity that I was studying. And, you know, over the course of the years of working on this project, I really became convinced that we have only begun to kind of peel back the ways that classical economics has shaped the way that we tell political economy stories. Um, And so a lot of the hype about the power of Duke, you know, has been really ensconced in business history, came from boosters and, and biographers and business historians who were some of them who were being paid by um, the tobacco companies. And so there's a, there's an inflated sense of power. They were really powerful, but the power is usually being attributed to like an innovative kind of genius power. It makes me think of that statue of Duke on Duke's campus with, uh, with the the chapel there in the background, right? It's almost a sort of religious iconography of, uh, of Duke and his place in the story. It's totally religious uh, on Duke campus. And in fact, one of my favorite fun facts is that Duke and his brothers and his father are buried in Duke Chapel. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. It always makes me think of Lee's statue there in the chapel in Washington and Lee, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very much a for um, Duke campus. It's uh, They are the patron saints of to campus. So yeah, that's, you know, as a cultural historian, that's just low hanging fruit, you know? (laughs) So I, but when I looked back into the history, the story of Duke's rise to power was told as his innovative genius. And at first I really accepted that. And I was not interested in doing that boring business history stuff. I wanted to get into the cool cultural history stuff that I was interested in. But as I I kept coming across anomalies in the story. So the story says that Duke, you know, um, is basically a creative destruction story that Duke innovated with the cigarette machine. This is a story that is in the, the U.S. AP history curriculum right now. We've been telling this story for 50 years. So anyway, it's that Duke innovated with the cigarette machine while the others uh, competitors were, you know, sort of stodgy old fashioned. They were still making the handmade cigarette and that allowed him to drop prices. And then he he captured the market and he drove his competitors to merge with him into the American Tobacco Company and, and Corporation. And that's that's sort of the way the story goes. Um, but it's just actually patently false. It's really there's nothing about that that's true. I kept coming across anomalies, like some of the innovations that were attributed to Duke happened, you know, chronologically before his company even started making cigarettes. So there was a prehistory that hadn't been returned to precisely because the mythos of corporate power was so entrenched and seemed so um, uh, natural to people that they hadn't gone back to look. So I ended up going back to look and ended up writing about another guy 
Louis Ginter, who was uh, an earlier, uh, went into cigarettes earlier than Duke and was responsible for marketing them in London, creating the first overseas market. That's virtually always attributed to Duke for bright leaf cigarettes, I should say specifically. But the but the bigger point, so there's a point about how the theories of creative destruction, which are promoted first by Joseph Schumpeter and are very, very uh, influential still today, how those got ensconced in the history and came to seem as natural. Um, There's a really big story there about how we talk about capitalism, where our presumptions about how capitalism works comes from, and what the historical basis of those are. And I think the historical basis for those theories is pretty weak. But there's an even larger story about how we presume corporate power, how we tell a story about westward or a Western primacy in the globe and uh, modernity and the coming of the modern world. So the cigarette companies should epitomize that story. And they've, the, usually the story is told as, uh, as the epitome of the story of vertical and horizontal integration, expansion from an American product to being a global product. But when you actually go and look at the history, it just doesn't match that story. That story depends on leaving dramatically huge facts out of the picture. You know, I I ended up, I wanted to tell a little story about smoking and culture in Reedsville, North Carolina. <laughs> but as it turns out, Reedsville is connected to a very big global story. And so I got sucked into a much more ambitious project that took me in many different directions and was really a lot of fun. Well, I think that's a characteristic of, of good histories is they often end up in places they didn't envision when, uh, when yeah. they began as projects. Yeah. Ironically, um, I went to Reedsville because it was the closest to Greensboro. And then I ended up not long after that booking a ticket to Shanghai, China. <laughs> just as you imagined it, right? Yes. <laughs> Your last point there, or a point you made just a minute ago, sort of anticipated another another question that I wanted to present to you, which is, I think, one of the, the most crucial points in this book for me is that for all of British American tobacco's plans for China, the, uh, the Chinese people, both bad employees as well as consumers, they really shaped their own encounters with cigarettes. So as you said, modernity didn't flow from west to east. It was constructed where these cultures met. So what is it about cigarettes that makes this a particularly good product for us to, to come to grips with this new story of modernity? Well, there are two, I think there are two big reasons that cigarettes become a great way to rethink the idea of modernity. And one is that the global history of cigarettes is not a history of west to east movement of of products, but a bi-directional flow of products. So before the American cigarette was developed on the bright leaf variety of cigarette. Um, Before people in the United States were really smoking cigarettes very much, the Turkish cigarette was the dominant cigarette. And then the Egyptian-made Turkish tobacco cigarette took over and um, work by Relly Schechter and Mary Neuberger is really important to me for this book because they talk about primacy of the businesses in the Balkans and in the Middle East in terms of creating a global flow that is really flowing from, you know, Egypt and the Middle East more generally to Britain, the United States, and around the world. And that was the first global cigarette. Uh, so you can only tell a story of the of the American cigarette as as an epitome of the modern 
um, industrial age, if you ignore the earlier Egyptian cigarette industry, and not only, and it wasn't only earlier, I shouldn't even say that, they, they achieved a global flow earlier, but the Egyptian cigarette industry uh, was dominant during the entire time that James B. Duke was in the cigarette business. So the idea that he ruled over the world is true in China. The The American cigarette became the dominant kind of cigarette smoked in China, um, the Brightly cigarette, which I, we can talk about what that means. But in the United States, Turkish tobacco remained part of or even more popular than American-grown tobacco into the early 1920s, and Duke had already gotten, was basically already out of the industry at that time. So I'm, I'm curious if I can interject for a second. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if there's sort of a Civil War origin to, uh, to the rise of the Egyptian cigarette manufacturing and this focus on tobacco. I'm wondering if there's a parallel story here to the expansion of, of cotton that takes place within the British Empire when those those southern markets are cut off for yeah. a few years. Yes, yeah, yep. That's um, that's Relly Schechter's work, Smoking Culture and Economy in the Middle East, talks about this, and it's really fascinating that when the flow of cotton, the supply of cotton was cut off from the U.S. South during the Civil War, Egyptian cotton, as you just mentioned, really took off, and that fueled the Egyptian economy. And so there was a lot of money around for capital investment. And so the Egyptian cigarette industry also took off at that point. And at the same time, it slowed the uptake of cigarettes in the United States. So the United States was actually a culturally slower to start smoking than at least a manufactured cigarette than many com countries in Europe and the Middle East and India and, and places like that. So um, because th they were not coming into the United States, they weren't flowing in. So, yeah, and people in the South, as you know, um, smoked, they chewed tobacco mostly at this time. And if they smoked, they smoked a pipe. They didn't smoke cigarettes much at all. I mean, there were people that hadn't even heard of cigarettes in the immediate post-Civil War era in the United States. Yeah, it's easy to forget how quickly that transition took place and how late that transition was, as, yeah. as you point out. Yeah. This is a story of Jim Crow as well, isn't it? And and what it meant for an American business model enmeshed in Jim Crow to, to then engage in business in another nation where those models didn't completely translate, but they still try. So can you elaborate right. on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one of my one of my convictions in writing this book is that the corporation is more than the CEO and the board of directors, so sort of the legal and stockholders. You know, that's sort of the legal definition of who is a member of a corporation. But obviously, the corporation is also a social organization that takes place and that emerges within culture. And so how do we see both of those as culturally constructed? We have a legal construction that is cultural, that is at odds with actually what we know about the facts of corporate life. And so in trying to not be ensnared by the legal definition or to replicate sort of the assumptions of that, I really tried hard to look at how the corporation developed on the ground. And that meant looking at how in the U.S. South, how basically how the cigarette came together out of Brightleaf Tobacco 
and the emergence of bright leaf tobacco as a commodity after the Civil War. And there, <laughs> I drew very strongly on, on your really wonderful book, um, well, A Golden you. Weed. Yeah, but it was absolutely formative because um, your the way that you talk about bright leaf tobacco. So, it was th- so let me let me finish that thought. So, um, in order for Louis Ginter, who was in Richmond, to come up with the, the cigarette that he marketed that was something distinctive and different from the Turkish tobacco cigarette, you know, he had to put a few things together that weren't actually automatic at the time. And he had to th- decide that cigarettes were ma- worth making in the United States, even though people didn't smoke them much. And he had to imagine that Brightleaf, which was being used for pipe smoking tobacco and chewing tobacco, would be a good cigarette smoking tobacco, even though it was very, very different from Turkish tobacco. Um, and so it wasn't what people expected from a cigarette. So he he's the innovator that made this new combination that brought these things together. And he was in Richmond, so he knew about this emergence of this brand new tobacco type, Brightleaf Tobacco. And so I had been working for a long time with kind of how to handle the history of Brightleaf. And there's, there's some things out there for sure. But when, you know, when I read your book, it really made everything click. And because your book, A Golden Weed, really shows how the emergence of Brightleaf tobacco was rooted in the Reconstruction and early Jim Crow era. And so the tobacco, it's not, you know, tobacco is a commodity that has a number of different kind of manufacturing processes in it. Um, And so you don't just plant a seed and then harvest tobacco. I'm telling you something I learned from you. Um, <laughs> but for the for listeners, you know, it has to be cultivated in a particular way. It depends on soils in a very finely tuned way. And it depends on a particular curing process. And you have to find a market for it. And Brightleaf had just emerged right before the Civil War. Civil War in, uh, interrupted its rise. And then it became a huge commodity after the Civil War. And so building on your book, which is brilliant in how you show the ways that the development of Brightleaf as a commodity was rooted in Reconstruction racial politics and in struggles over land and labor. And, well, I appreciate the yeah. kind words, although I must say I was, I was terribly chagrined when I was reading your book and I, I realized how much of the story I had missed in um, <laughs> sort of uh, Brightleaf's transition to become this cigarette commodity. So uh, so I really appreciate the, uh, the <laughs> well, spots where, where you yeah. showed me I should have followed through on what I was talking <laughs> about and realized some of this. Uh, not at all. I You know, um, what it helped me see, what your book helped me see was how, you know, and this, I guess, is for edge effects is kind of the environmental history piece of it. The way you talk about tobacco culture and the ways that racialization is part and parcel of tobacco culture. And so the places that people hold in that culture, whether they be owners or workers, or in the case of Brightleaf Tobacco, there are a bunch of other roles, right, that you can hold in kind of the preparation of the commodity and the knowledge that's required to kind of expand the commodity into new regions. All of that is racialized. And so with that foundation, then I was able to think about the, the material that I had about how there were these, when the American Tobacco Company got huge, it started taking over. It started out as a cigarette making company, but it started taking over 
the entire tobacco business in the South, including the smoking and chewing tobacco business. That And smoking tobacco business meant referred to pipe tobacco, not cigarette. So, you know, there were all these people who didn't think, they thought the cigarette was, you know, frankly, kind of silly and a Northern and European thing and not something that they needed to pay attention to. But once America, once the American Tobacco Company became a big corporation and started taking things over, it became a really different story. So a whole huge industry had developed around Brightleaf that you developed in your book that then went with little factories that were owned by partnerships, family-owned things all over Virginia and North Carolina. Well, not all over, but through much of Virginia and North Carolina. And, and it was expanding. It was sort of the foundation of the whites' recovery in those regions after the Civil War. Blacks had been kept out of the ownership roles in that, that business. But then American Tobacco Company started taking it all over. And what happened is the white owner class that had seized control of an industry that Blacks had more knowledge in uh, coming out of slavery, uh, whites seized the ownership over. Then that white ownership class became a managerial class um, once the tobacco companies took it all over. They all lost their companies. Virtually all of them lost their companies, and it became corporatized. But then they became a white managerial network, and it was that network that managed the expansion of the corporation. Um, so your book helped me see that white, not naturalize, the whiteness of that managerial network mm -hmm. that then orchestrated expansion of Brightleaf into eastern North Carolina. And then, you know, what really blew my mind was when I discovered that it was this white managerial network that went to China and took... And places like southern Rhodesia. And, and uh, many other places, Canada, right? Everywhere. Right. But first really importantly to China, um, and since British American Tobacco's biggest foreign outpost was in China. Um, and in China, they built a, a parallel production center. So they, they grew Brightleaf tobacco, but they also started huge factories, factories that made the U.S. factories look tiny and printing presses and, you and everything. You nicely how they, um, they applied those ideas about environment, those ideas about soil and cultivation, or yeah. tried to apply them on the ground yeah. in China. Yeah. And I thought that was a really fascinating part of, of your description there. Yeah, they, they definitely were trying to, well, they were basically, you know, this white managerial network was able to maintain control over that knowledge and then sell that to the company so that they could get those opportunities to, you know, get the jobs in China. Um, and one of the things that I discovered right away, and Chinese historians have written about it a tiny bit, is that whiteness was the most important thing. They claimed the knowledge, but they were willing to share the knowledge with other white people of the same class if they were from the Brightleaf region. African-Americans who also grew tobacco, knew tobacco, had all of that same basic knowledge were kept out of, were continued to be kept out of those corporate networks, um, which is something different than the, from uh, Andrew Zimmerman's book um, about cotton in Germany. I guess along those lines, transnational histories, I think, are certainly in vogue at the moment, but they're quite hard to do. Uh, you have to master two or more sets of literature, social and political customs, deal with language barriers. And there have been some wonderful recent books that have shown the power of this done well. I'm thinking of, uh, say, Tori Olson's Agrarian Crossings. 
but still they're a challenge. So how did you work to overcome those obstacles in this book? Or where was it particularly difficult to tell the, the Chinese side of the story? Yeah, well, the book took me a little while. <laughs> and that's why, one reason why. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely really a challenge. I, you know, I realized that I had to make it a transnational book when I was doing research in Reedsville. Um, and I was doing some of the archival research to back up the oral histories. And I came across a biography by James A. Thomas, who was born in Reedsville. And he uh, went on to head the American Tobacco or the British American Tobacco Company in China during its formative years. So there was this direct relationship between Reedsville, this tiny little town, and the global industry. And then I started coming across, you know, there were hundreds of these white guys from North Carolina and Virginia who went on this network to do this work. And so I made them sort of the ballast for the story. I'm not trying to do a comparative story. There are a lot of great Chinese histories out there. Sherman Cochran has a business history of British American tobacco in China. Carol Benedict has a great history of tobacco in China. And Elizabeth Perry, too, has done stuff on strikes because British American tobacco in China is one of the huge, hugest companies. And it had a really huge role in China, you know, from 1905 to really 19. 37. So I wasn't trying to do that. I basically had to think very hard about, and one of the things that was really compelling to me was to think about Depeche Chakrabarty's idea of provincializing Europe and think about how do you write a story? Can I write a story that's kind of based on U.S. actors that provincializes the United States, that does not replicate those kind of Eurocentric ideas that um, have hampered our histories. Can I write a story that's not just another story of modernity? And one of the convictions that I had very early on was that part of the problem was this idea of a time lag that people think, oh, you, you create an industry in the United States, it's fully formed, and then you take it overseas. And so people follow, they follow actors from the U.S. to China right, to, to see how they implement this entity that is fully formed. That's not what happened at all. The industry grew in both places at the same time, managed by this, basically by this same managerial network in both places. And so for me, it's a, it's a two-sided story of the global cigarette industry, not a story of white guys who went to China. And so it made it harder to write because uh, each chapter has substantive material about both the United States and what's happening in the United States tobacco industry and China and what's happening in the Chinese industry. The other thing that um, I was really committed to doing is making sure that Chinese actors are actual players in the story. And that required, you know, working with Chinese translators and going to China and doing some research and, you know, being in conversation with East Asian historians and just keeping on digging. And luckily, there's a, like I said, there's a good secondary uh, literature to draw on to help me get started. And so one of the major players in the, in the history in more than one chapter is a guy named Zheng Bo Zhao, who was a really important entrepreneur. He was part of British American Tobacco. Um, they actually really obscured how much he was calling the shots in China. So the more I dug, the more I found about how important he was. 
And, uh, you know, there's a chapter on, chi- on factories, so there's, there's a lot of documentation about Chinese workers. There's a documentation about Chinese servants and sex workers. So it was really fun. It was really exciting. And I think that's one of the beautiful elements of Cigarette Inc. is the, the way that you um, produce these very human narratives that in a manageable way for readers helps them understand this complex corporate history and the social history of multiple places. I guess the the intimate part of this history to which uh, your title alludes. Can you tell us a bit more about a few of these people, sort of how you had found them, identified their stories as important ones to tell? Sure. Let's see. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is true. The word intimacy for me is a really important one. I'm drawing that from people like Ann Stoller and other people who've worked on Empire. Um, and very often they're talking about the kinds of domestic intimacies and sexual intimacies that help make Empire work, that form the social relations of Empire. So these guys who went over from the United States to China were embedded in kind of a white supremacist culture in the United States. They brought that, as you mentioned before, we haven't talked very much about how Jim Crow ideas got implemented in China. So basically at every chapter that sees them trying to figure out how to adapt to being in China and what their interactions are with other you know, foreigners as well as Chinese people. And they left really good records, um, partly thanks to Chinese historians who, you know, started an oral history project with them back in the 80s. And so I'm indebted to those oral histories and some collecting that happened in the 1980s that U.S. historians seemed uninterested, <laughs> but Chinese historians <laughs> were getting that stuff preserved. So I'm I'm grateful. And that's all in uh, Eastern Carolina. Most of it's there. Um, So there's some really great letters and diaries and oral histories that get into the human aspect of being part of a corporation and a big corporate endeavor like that. And that really helped me with the China part of it. With the U.S. part, all of that is a lot more accessible and a story more more commonly told. Though the oral histories in Reedsville really helped me get a handle on some of the things that I think are new about that, the role of the Klan in the labor union and the role. Well, of- one of the fascinating figures for me, I think, oh, was, uh, was Hattie Gregory. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That's where I was headed. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, the letters um, at Eastern Carolina include materials from one couple who become the foundation of a chapter, Henry and Hattie Gregory. And Hattie Gregory married Henry Gregory. Henry was in charge of the agricultural program for British American tobacco in China. So he was the guy who was organizing whether they could establish Brightleaf or something like Brightleaf Tobacco in China and trying to create a, a, a structure that would be like Jim Crow, but wasn't Jim Crow. He married a woman named Hattie and she moved to China and she lived in China for over 20 years. They had two children there. One of them passed away from diphtheria and she wrote, especially early on in her first years as she was setting up a household, she wrote amazing letters home detailing her experiences with servants, her experiences um, in the household. Um, and you could really see through her letters how much of British American tobacco company culture revolved uh, around the Gregory household. They had weekly 
brunches at their house. And all of this depended on servants. And so looking at her relationship with servants, she herself compares it to her relationship to African-American servants when she was, you know, in North Carolina. And she writes back and forth about managing servants and how do you manage servants. And, you know, her daughter ended up reflecting, you know, I think my mother, you know, felt that she understood how to manage servants in in China better than most other foreigners because she had the experience of work, you know, working with African-Americans in the South. So and I think that's one of the places where your, your uh, sort of point about Jim Crow hits home most powerfully in the book is to, to see this being attempted to be replicated within these, these domestic spheres that also functioned in this uh, important way for the business model in this place yep. at times. So it's yeah. a really creative thing you do there, I think. Thank you. Thank you. One of the other things I think you do really well in this book is follow cigarettes as they flow out of the factories and beyond corporate control and into consumers' lives, both in China and in North Carolina. Uh, You show how they show up in in jazz clubs as collectible forms of advertising on baseball diamonds. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about how consumers lived cigarette culture in the early 20th century? Yeah. So... One of my another guiding principle of this book was that every aspect of the corporation has a social life. I'm interested in that social life. I want to see how it constitutes the daily power relations of the corporation. And so there's two ways that that what seems to be consumer culture ends up coming into that. One is that marketers, are having to place cigarettes within particular social scenes. They need a kind of social circulation. They need another you know, term people might use is cultural intermediaries. They need cultural inter- intermediaries to take up cigarettes. One of the ways that, so, you know, I don't use actually the term consumers or consumer culture in this. I don't, I, we could talk about why I'm not sure it's important, but, but it is important for me to reframe it that that innovation requires a kind of social circulation. So I guess I am going to talk about why. Um, <laughs> so we we tend to divide off the commodity chain model has been, I think, a huge problem for the way we talk about industry and culture um, because we tend to divide off consumption from produ- production in a, in a really stark way, almost as a binary, right? And so as I was working on this, if I'm seeing every part of the corporation as as having a social life, then somebody trying to figure out how to market cigarettes, they're embedded in a social life. Like Louis Ginter is actually this guy who partners with another guy in the 1870s and 80s in Richmond, really out there, you know, and he's so he's like thinking about where to put cigarettes um, and he's drawing on his own experience, and he's trying to get them placed within particular kinds of cultural milieus. And he ends up making them successful in in London in the gentlemen's clubs. Gentlemen's clubs not being strip clubs back then, but being super right. elite kind of Oscar Wilde, you know, clubs. And so there's an argument there, you know, that the first popular American cigarette was actually a queer cigarette. You have to read the book to know know the, know why that's the case. So part of the way I end up with 
with with consumers is by thinking about how cigarettes got taken up by the culture, how they became popular, and they became popular within particular social scenes that then made them famous, gave them notoriety, and made them a trend. And so that's actually a story about innovation and marketing. And we're just we're just wrong if we think that innovation and marketing just happens on Madison Avenue in some stuffy office, you know, or mm-hmm. or in more more nearly in the like smoky bar, right? It doesn't. It happens in relationship to the social circulation of commodities. The other place that, and the things that you're referencing um, in your question that so-called consumers come in is in thinking about the ways that sm- that cigarettes as the commodity that the corporation is making actually gets um, smoked by people in the corporation itself. So everybody, almost everybody in the cigarette corporation from the highest executives to the workers smoked cigarettes and cigarettes were given freely, but not universally to workers in order to create patterns of prestige. And so smoking the company's cigarette was something that positioned you in relationship to the corporation if you were, in fact, a factory worker or a manager or a salesman or an executive. And recreating how that happened shows that commodity culture isn't like the end of, like there's a chain and we go to the end of it before we get anybody smoking cigarettes. Of course not, you know, you know, they were smoking all the way along. And so in looking at how workers were using the cigarettes, it became very clear that the company used cigarettes to create prestige among workers by giving free cigarettes to white workers in the United States and denying them to black workers. That ended up meaning that black workers lived a little longer. (laughs) But at the time, it created status and stigma. And in China, they gave free cigarettes to male workers and not to female workers. And so Already, the cigarette and cigarette smoking then has corporate meanings, has meanings. It's about the the relationship of the social means of production, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's about production of cigarettes. Uh, it's not consumer culture, right? It's producer culture. And by looking at what workers then were doing with cigarettes, that's what took me to the jazz clubs and to the baseball fields. So the jazz clubs was a place where that's both marketing and consumption because the British American tobacco dudes were selling their cigarettes in these very fancy cabarets in the interwar period, very famous, fancy cabarets that were playing jazz and everyone was dancing to jazz. This is the jazz age. And so they sold cigarettes there, but they also went there as a group. So there's stories of Henry Gregory um, regularly taking a group of newbies, you know, who are, you know, maybe 19, 20, 21 years old, <laughs> you know, taking a group of newbies to the jazz club, putting down a bunch of cigarettes on the table, a bunch of dance tickets so they can dance with taxi dancers who are, you know, Chinese, Korean, uh, women from various nations um, who are there to dance with the mostly male foreign clientele. And they would dance. And that's a corporate activity with the cigarette. So it's not, it's, it is consumer culture, but it's not just consumer mm-hmm. culture, right? It's corporate culture. Um, and so the cigarette, the relationship, the sexual relationship with the, with the low-wage female worker and you know, the dancing, it all becomes one piece. 
Likewise, baseball was, uh, oh, oh, and in North Carolina, too, workers, uh, I learned this through the interviews, and that was one of the funnest things about doing those interviews, is I found these older African-American people who had gone to these dances at the Armory in Reedsville, where they got some of the best jazz music of the 20th century. I mean, everybody can Yeah, that was a really fascinating, a uh, really fascinating portion of the book, I thought. They loved talking about it. Oh, my God. You know, and I was blown away. Um, and they were glad that I had heard of the, you know, Duke Ellington, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I never realized my corner of the world once uh, once lured these sort of names. It didn't, you know, isn't it surprising? And they played to all black audiences. If uh, a few white people were jazz hounds could go, but they had to stand behind a rope and listen because it was segregated. This was black culture. And they came to Reedsville, tiny little town, because there were people with a steady income who could book their ticket and that was on the it was on the railroad later on highway 29 it was all because of the tobacco company and so they uh, and they went to those jazz shows and they smoked the company's cigarettes and so if i hadn't had those interviews in reedsville i wouldn't have known about how important that was to workers culture and they they would play often on their way, they could get bands to stop in Reedsville in between uh, gigs in D.C. and and Atlanta. And very often that meant that they were playing on Sunday because they do Saturday. They weren't going to waste Saturday night in Reedsville. Mm-hmm. We have the same problem in Madison. Nobody plays here Saturday night. <laughs> you get the Wednesday afternoon. Um, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. You got to go. You got to go Thursday. Uh, and then they're in, they're in, then they're in Chicago. So bands would stop on Sunday, but there was a law against dancing on Sunday. So they would start the show at 12.01 Monday morning and they would dance for hours and then they'd stumble home, change their clothes and go to the factory to go to work. That's a workplace culture. Do you know, that's something that that was part of working at American Tobacco and being African-American. So, yeah, I... I in a St. Friend- Monday was probably particularly <laughs> exactly. fun in this era, I imagine. <laughs> nice, yeah, nice one. Yeah, so I, I, in a friendly way, I say there are no consumers in my book. There's only producers and producer... Well, and this made me think of my childhood, which, which sounds very strange, but, but I'll frame that because um, it made me think about some of those cultural elements of, of cigarette consumption that I was tangentially engaged in, not through through smoking as a sixth grader, but but through wearing those um, those Marlboro t-shirts, if yeah. you remember them, with the silhouette of the cowboy. <laughs> and it made me think about those uh, those Chinese cigarette smokers in homes that put up the uh, the calendars that were often an incentive yes. that became popular in and of their own right. Yes. Or also on the farm I grew up, it seemed like every second container on the place was an old Prince Albert smoking tobacco can. Uh-huh. <laughs> My grandfather smoked that brand and we kept the cans because they were useful. And so they were just from, from the beginning of my life, from my earliest memories, they were always there as this part of the material culture. And, and But not something I thought of in the way that you sort of live in this book in a wonderful way. Right, right, right. That materiality, I think, and how those how those objects circulate through and yeah like you said that the advertising in China not very many people especially early on could afford cigarettes cigarettes were very expensive 
and people smoked pipes and pipe tobacco was quite cheap. And so it took a while. Um, and, and even through the time period that I look at, smoking was something that was done by, by middle-class people in China, not, not so much by the huge, huge agrarian population. But the advertisement circulated through the rural areas. And that was something that, that Sherman Cochran talked about in his book about how people felt that British American tobacco had more reach into the rural population with its advertisements than any government body ever had. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's like how, how that shapes people's relationship to the product is it's it's ephemeral but i think it's persuasive when you compile up the the evidence right yeah and as you point out i mean the, the present is sort of always ephemeral mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so the what seems like that ephemerality from us uh looking back i don't, didn't feel like it right well well it's also i mean it's also the material you know and it's another thing that i'm really was really interested with this book is thinking about materiality in different ways you know thinking about materiality in terms of the economic history and kind of that big global capitalism scale but also thinking about the ephemerality of the cigarette and the prince albert can you know well, maybe shift gears from ephemerality to permanence in a way, <laughs> something that doesn't fade. When it comes to tobacco, I think one thing historians always have to grapple with, of course, is the health consequence, but also this question of addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, addiction is a black box in a way for historians. It's tough for us to figure out exactly how to place it in, in our narratives and give it power. How might we weave addiction into this, this story that you're telling us? That's a that's a great question. You put that so nicely. <laughs> but there is I, I will just put it a little bit more baldly. I don't really talk about addiction in this story. I tried to. Do you know? I, I certainly thought about it. Like where would where would the addiction go? But I think part of it part of it was just I I couldn't figure out how to do it. To be totally honest, the evidence about addiction is very rare. Even so it's there might be a permanence to it, but the evidence to it is 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 very elusive. And I think that I'm following some historians of smoking who I respect hugely, who are focused more on the medical history of that, and have treated addiction almost like the ace in the hole for the companies. Because they had an addictive product, all they had to do is kind of wave it under somebody's nose and, you know, it's a total power kind of um, situation that then the person is going to have one be addicted and they, they have a righteous cause because those medical historians were, were doing and are doing extremely important work in kind of exposing the treachery of the cigarette companies. And I wanted to give them that. I wanted to just cede that territory to them in a way and let them tell that part of the story um, is much more evident as a post-World War II story. My story ends before World War II. I was more interested in looking at the human, kind of the the human engagement with the product and the company within the company itself. So again, I don't talk about just consumers. There are no, no, nobody in this book is really is just a consumer. They're all part of the production of the company. And so looking at what I had about addiction from workers, that's where I had the most evidence because I was talking to them myself. myself. And they said things like, 
Smoking is not addictive. (laughs) I'm talking to you. (laughs) Smoking is not addictive. I smoked for 55 years and I just quit on a dime. And I'd be like, really? And I said, you never felt like it was, no, I was absolutely not addictive. All you have to do is keep your hands busy. I was like, really? So you just kept your hands busy? And she said, yeah, I took up crocheting. I crocheted Afghans for all 35 of my grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah, it's like not addictive at all. Um, So I had a few things like that that were pretty fun, you know, like kind of sad, but fun. Like I just loved her. She was one of my favorite people to talk to. I have one more thing to say about addiction. People don't report addiction the way that we would report it, right? And I feel like there's a middle ground between you can't actually just wave a cigarette at somebody and they become addicted, right? So there's, you know, some brands took off, others didn't. Some populations took up cigarettes, others didn't. And so there's a much more nuanced story to be told. I'm trying to tell a more nuanced story. But also addiction itself, you know, there are historians who are really challenging the ways that we've talked about that. It's a whole field unto itself. And I'm really compelled by the way that you can write your story of addiction somewhat yourself. So there's a huge subjective part of it. um, And what we even like, what we even call addiction can be experienced in different ways at different times. So I don't deny that cigarettes are, are addictive, But yeah, I didn't have the evidence given my focus on the corporation to do justice to that story. Well, in some ways, I appreciate the uh, the way that you sort of move around the issue in this book, because um, for me, as an environmental historian, at least there's a there's a tremendous potential explanatory power in addiction. Right. The body is environment. But there's also the the sort of great hazard of environmental determinism. Yeah. To, to simply assign this, as you say, to addiction and, and leave it there, elides all of those things that you just pointed right. out. Um, addiction is not not one thing, certainly. A great, and, uh, a great, just one fact that demonstrates that is that in China, after the revolution in 1949, the oh before before uh, there wasn't a stigma against women smoking in China the way that there had been in the United States and and Britain that was attached to Victorianism. Um, it was fine for women to smoke in China, but it became associated with Western culture and foreign culture. So after the 1949 revolution, that became considered sexually suspect the rate of women smoking plummeted to about 2%. And smoking became a male thing. Um, Mao was pictured smoking all the, you know, all the time. And the male rate of smoking skyrocketed. Um, And so there was this really interesting, now you can't explain that with an an addiction model. Mm -hmm. So definitely there's more work to be done. And I really look forward to somebody who does a super smart and nuanced look at addiction and smoking. Yeah. Are you listening out there? PhD candidates? <laughs> <laughs> Just not an ideal yeah. topic. Your so you note at the end of the book that China is today the world's largest cigarette market and with little sign of decline in smoking rates. So I know this is projecting beyond your story, but what do you think the, the nation's China's future is with tobacco and with the cigarette? What China's future is? Yeah. China's future with these things. Wow. 
I don't know, right? Because I don't know at all what's going on with global capitalism. It's either in charge of our, right now it seems to be in charge of the globe. And so there are huge anti-smoking efforts going on in China and money is flowing in to try to catch up. The big problem is that when, you know, when the United States started anti-smoking efforts, the comp, you know, the tobacco companies just shifted their attention to overseas markets. Mm-hmm. And so, and there wasn't similar money for those. And, and China, when it nationalized, China nationalized British American tobacco in 1949 and took over its infrastructure and ran it as a state-run company. And so the state was directly invested in promoting cigarette smoking for decades and has still got a financial stake in that. It's just a totally different you know, environment for anti-smoking efforts, but there is a lot of money going into that right now and a lot of effort. Uh, but of course, foreign companies are also have rushed back into China to market and basically created a new moment of the foreign cigarette in China in the 1980s and 90s. So I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't look good at the moment, but um, I thought about that in some ways because, um, and this may be an aside that gets edited out, but uh, <laughs> I thought about it because some of that material culture of the bright leaf system has been leaving places like North Carolina in recent years, not just the, the manufacturing jobs, but, uh, but the tractors, the barns themselves, uh, the tobacco companies have been purchasing those material elements of bright leaf production and then shipping them to places like Brazil, places yeah, like China. yeah recreating the, the physical landscapes of a place like North Carolina in a way in distant places. So it's, um, I don't know, it's as, as you point out, it's sort of unknowable, but it's, it's yeah, it's definitely still about. connected. And there are still people now growing tobacco under arguably worse conditions um, in Eastern North Carolina for British American tobacco. <laughs> it looked like things were really changing. Um, and that's something that I talk about in the epilogue. It looked like, and things did really change. When I talk about, you know, I saw the cigarette industry crashing in North Carolina in the 90s. That was real. That was a real crash and people felt it. And um, a lot of farmers, you know, had to shift out of tobacco and, you know, the median wage uh, plummeted in places like Reedsville. But there's been a resurgence, um, and the U.S. market is is growing again for cigarettes. And there are, you know, people working as in kind of gang labor, and chil- children are working in tobacco in eastern North Carolina today. So, and for many states, like the state of Wisconsin, the tobacco settlement money is gone because sometimes it was used to balance budgets and other things besides tobacco cessation. So yeah, we're definitely in the same kind of situation now, but with a really different kind of moment in global capitalism. Well, I know we've gone a little bit over the time limit. Thank you so much. Those are great questions. That was Drew Swanson, professor of history at Wright State University. His most recent book, Beyond the Mountains, Commodifying Appalachian Environments is available now from the University of Georgia Press. Drew was speaking with Nan Instad, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the book Cigarettes, Inc., An Intimate History of Corporate Imperialism, available from the University of Chicago Press. 
You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton and me, Sarah Thomas. The music you're hearing is by Julian Munch. Stay tuned for episodes this fall featuring literary scholar Nicole Seymour and feminist and environmental humanities scholar Estrita Nemanis. Get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Radio Public, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.